And I think that the effect of the crash is everybody had to raise the bar for what they were doing. And that's a good thing. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. As almost always, I'm Alex Roy, the Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, and the producer of Apex, The Secret Race Across America, a great documentary about the cannonball run. Moving on. <laughs> and I'm Kirsten Korosek, a transportation editor at TechCrunch, a very simple title. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. All right. Oh, wait, author <laughs> of Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. Please, yes. Please, please buy my book. Let's dive right in. What's the first topic? There, there's actually big news on the um, AV front. And um, Ed, do you want to do you want to comment? <laughs> um, I'm talking it, about the Uber story. I'm not talking about you leaving Pave. Uh, yes, yeah, you, uh, I do want to comment. I uh, I've just been consuming uh, eagerly uh, Wired Magazine's massive and just amazingly reported story uh, about. Rafael Vasquez and the human behind the wheel during the Elaine Hertzberg death, uh, the crash of an Uber autonomous vehicle in 2018. It's quite a story. Right. So I will pay a compliment to both of you. Are you ready for the compliment? Okay. I don't say nice things about anybody. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> we, the three of us, when this occurred, all performed. <laughs> a dying art, which is called journalism, and even injected some opinion into that journalism. And all three of us were more right than I possibly could have guessed about our discussion analysis of this event. And I think it, it's completely validated by this really, really well-researched column. So congratulations to the two of you. <laughs> Thank you. So what were what um, both Alex and Ed are referring to without actually providing you know details and specifics um, is an article from Lauren Smiley over at Wired. Um, the headline is "I am the operator: the aftermath of a self-driving tra- tragedy." And the reference is if you've been listening to the show for a while or have been um, following the AV industry, you know. Go back to 2018. Um, this was at the top of the hype cycle, I would say, and lots of activity, particularly in Arizona, California, but certainly other places like Pittsburgh. And in March 2018, um, Uber ATG, which still existed, um, had um, was involved, uh, and it had a human uh, safety operator behind the wheel, which is this uh, Rafael Vasquez. Um, hit a pedestrian uh, woman named Elaine Hertzberg, and she died. And the article gets into extreme detail about sort of unpacking not just what happened that day, but the legal ramifications for Uber and for Rafaela and sort of how it's all played out. Um, And it's... uh, a perfectly timed story too, because a jury trial is supposed to start next month, right? That's right. And and this was for a little more context. This story um, was has up to this point, up until this Wired article came out, um, I'd actually just been sort of looking into it a, a little bit, and um, there were it was very sporadically covered, mostly by kind of local outlets. Had not really gotten national attention, and and I'd actually just tweeted like. I don't know, like a week or two ago, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, um, that like, this is such a huge story. Like this is, I think it's the biggest story in autonomous vehicles um, and maybe one of the biggest stories in technology, um, not just because of the impact and, and we can get into sort of some of the, the, the issues that it, that it raises, but also just, I mean, the, the dramatic persona of it, right? Like the, you know, you hear you have this trans woman and, and this article, you really learn a lot about Rafaela. Vasquez's background and everything, and then also the relationship between Uber um, and its its and autonomous vehicle technology in general, but then also with the state of Arizona, and it's just a, a fascinating look at at sort of this intersection of power 
and technology and and humans and it's so compelling and and the story really does uh an amazing job of of kind of just giving the sort of in, in some ways like as you say Kirsten, sort of like the definitive um sort of tiktok really of of sort of how this is all played out the the interesting there, there's a lot again to sort of unpack with this article and also the event itself but you know talking about like the short term ramifications of this um because we don't really quite know what the long term ones were but the short term ones were if you remember uh an investigation was launched there was a flurry of media activity um there were there were um you know safe to say like some immediate pieces of information that that really made it look like the fault lay with the both Uber and the human safety operator, right? Like, so there was, there was a twofold issue. Uber settled right away, um, but the very short term reaction was, yes, Uber stopped immediately all of their um, testing, but so did, if you recall, every other company, at least for about two weeks, and then there was this, you know, flood of, at least inbound on my side, of AV companies updating or reaching out to me to, to show what they what their safety protocols were. And there was like a six month, you know, I'd say steady activity of companies reaching out, talking to me about how they had um, either changed or were sharing what they did in their operations. And the big one was not having one human safety operator behind the wheel, but having two. Um, that was that was a positive development, I think. Um, but the rest, you know, Alex, I don't know, what, what's your thought on like other short-term positive and negative um, outcomes? From this case, because we're we're only a few years out right now, we're coming up to four years. Well, the at the time, uh, we're going back to 2018. It, it is incredible to me that, uh, I mean, that the training policies around safety operators. I mean, in this column, I believe says that Uber did a week of training. Um, mm -hmm. which seems really lean to me, really, really lean. Uh, I, just, I find what's the average very, today? Would you say what, that it's you know, usually about know. six weeks ish, four to five, I, four I, to six when weeks? When you say, well, it depends what the training period because training can continue after departing. Training continues, I think, for any re you know, a good faith uh, or, you know, company beyond the initial period in a school like we're actually at a track and in a facility doing classroom going on the track uh you know your training is ongoing and it never ends uh but i mean that's what what people consider traditionally training it's probably four to six weeks uh and of course there's a big difference between four to six four weeks of going to harvard you know uh or in four weeks of, of going to like a non-serious program and I'll give you an example. There are a lot of uh, driving schools exist, racing schools exist. They often teach different skills. And a lot of these schools, just you pay, you get a diploma. Uh, that doesn't make you a race car driver. It doesn't make you a safe driver. Um, there has there have to be like gating metrics that allow you to go to the next phase of operating the vehicle. And they need to be very serious and there needs to be ongoing testing and retesting, not just of the system, but of the people who are meant to monitor the system. And there's a second component to being a safety operator or Argo calls them test specialists, Aurora calls them mission specialists, I forget what Waymo calls them, is that they have to not just, the person on the left seat is not just, according to this article, monitoring the surroundings um, and preempting uh, an event. Uh, they are also... Uh, part of the data gathering cycle. How is the vehicle performing even when you don't have to intervene? Like, what is it doing? What notes are you taking? What are you discussing with your co-driver, um, co co-pilot? And the person in the right seat isn't just, a, or shouldn't be just looking at the visualization on the laptop 
of what the car is doing. They're also in um, uh, in aviation. There's this uh, something called cockpit resource management, uh, which evolved out of uh, after several really horrific crashes in the seventies. And this was a system by which you know the two or more people in the cockpit of a plane are uh, not just you know saying yes to each other, but you know going through checklists, mental checklists and written checklists of a long list of best practices and safety protocols before going to the next stage. In autonomous vehicle testing, similar things must be done. And back in 2018, it's not apparent that Uber was doing many of them or any of them. Because according to this article, the training was very thin. When they went from two, I don't know how much how stringent the in-car best practices were at the time. And when they went to one, it appears that everything evaporated. And the article you know, claims that people were supposed to self-police, that uh, I think uh, her, uh, I think Raskes uh, says in the article that her own manager didn't check on her performance or look at her videos. I mean, these are like fundamental things that you just wouldn't, wouldn't should not and, and fly, cannot fly in an organization that takes safety seriously. Multiple companies had taken this very seriously, predated this crash. And I think that the effect of the crash is everybody had to raise the bar for what they were doing. And that's a good thing. Right. Um, to me, reading through this article reminded me what a perfect storm had been created. It was just ideal conditions for a tragedy to unfold. And it starts in part with the aggressiveness and hype around this idea of racing the race to deploy commercially. And, you know, I've thought about that term a lot. I even used some that term, you know, back in 2017. Me too. And, you know, then I would look back and go, I would, I would go and look back and I'd cringe. But I actually, now that I look back and I really think about it, I think at that time, everyone was racing to it. It just, then they had to pivot and change. I think that they were, there was uh, a more aggressive sort of idealistic, um, fantastical idea of the future. And it was like the race is on and it was exciting. Um, and now of course we don't use that same terminology, but you know, starting with this idea that there was this competition and of course the competition still exists today, but it had a sense of urgency to it back then. Like if we don't do this now, we will lose and we can't lose and we must win. And so in the case of Uber, the perfect storm was being in the industry in which there was this race itself being a company that was going after it very aggressively um, being in a state in which welcomed that economic opportunity and basically had zero regulations, just an executive order. Um, and then the lack of this sort of safety protocol um, where there weren't two drivers, where they where Uber was doing the so-called crush miles, where they would, um, as the article states, hundreds of thousands, then millions of miles. Um, to hit these very um, lofty goals. So if you had, let's say, take remove two of those legs from the stool, probably this wouldn't have happened. It's that you know, classic case. That's every safety Right, thing, it is. Right? It is every safety yeah. thing. And the, what's the, uh, the game? Is it Pachinko? The game where you put the ball in, the thing, and it goes down. Gravity brings the ball, the ball down, and it has like 100 places it could get caught. And that you, you hope it gets to the bottom, like the right hole. You know, it, it is interesting that uh, so many people want to blame it solely on uh, Rafael Vasquez because so many opportunities existed to mitigate or prevent this particular scenario. One of the biggest and most obvious things to emerge from this is, uh, I guess, what I hope is the ubiquity of the best practices defined in J3018, as the EJ3018 standard, specifically driver monitoring systems. So I, I'm glad you you mentioned J3018 because I think that's that's a really important piece here. And and as amazing of a piece of reporting as this is, I was a little surprised that it didn't even reference that. Um, and J3018, just for those who aren't familiar, um, it's SAE guidelines for public road uh, testing, for safe public road uh, testing of 
level three, four, and five automated vehicles, prototypes. Um, and I, I actually had to just look it up because I wasn't sure. But uh, the initial version of, of J3018 uh, was actually released in 2015. So three years before this crash, uh, uh, March of 2018. So more than three years before this crash. So there was a good sense of what was at least sort of guidelines or best practices for how to ensure safety uh, in this kind of wait, testing. J3018, wait, the accident, the, the crash was in 2018. So when did, when did the first iteration come out? March of 2015. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. No, neither did I. I actually had to just look it up. So so there was plenty, like, so Uber should have been aware of what was sort of considered, at least by at this SAE committee, what, you know, what the guidelines were. And, you know, to, to Alex was referring a little bit to some of the training stuff uh, and, and some of the things in there. 3018, for those who haven't read it, unfortunately, it's not publicly available. It's kind of a drag. Um, you have to pay almost a hundred bucks to SAE to get it. But basically... It doesn't tell you sort of like how long it's non-prescriptive, so it doesn't tell you how long the training has to be. But um, for example, the article mentions that the main boot camp training that Vasquez went through in Pittsburgh was about a week, and it was mostly on-track testing. Uh, Thirty eighteen says that training should include classroom, on-track, simulator, and public road. It doesn't say how long each of those should be, but it should have all four of those components as well as, as Alex mentioned, driver monitoring. Um, so clearly Uber was doing a number of things that were really aggressive, as, as Kirsten was saying, but they also weren't living up to, to guidelines that, again, had been around for years at that point. Um, and the reason that these, these rules were created in the first place was because we know, and we have known, just, to, just like as we've, we've discussed for many, many, many episodes here on the Autonicast about autopilot, that you know, when folks are behind the wheel of a partially automated system that requires them to be actively supervising it, um, if they are not, if they aren't either well trained and well managed, and or they don't have good driver monitoring, this is not about being a good driver, a bad driver, or a good person, or a bad person, or anything like that. It's just this inattention is inevitable, and I think in this story, if you read it, there's a lot of of sort of hints at that that this is not just Vasquez, um, that that was sort of the issue here. And so the fact that this individual was put in a position where they were almost doomed to fail, almost, you know, not necessarily with these terrible results, but but doomed to fail in, you know, in some way at some point and is now facing criminal charges. I think that makes this a really, really important case. Well, it also Cheerson? you could see how, yeah, you, you can also see how you could take the same question and apply it to um, passenger vehicles that are currently on the road with the beta software that allow, I mean, it, it basically gets to the root of the same question, even though the difference in levels of autonomy are different, right? And by the so, way, yeah, no, and, and, and a Tesla driver has now been charged as well. And um, as the, the article points out, uh, you know, this is, this now it's it's one thing to say like well if you get a job for for Uber as a you know which doesn't even have a ATG's not around anymore but if you get a job as a safety operator you know be careful because you could be bearing the responsibility uh, in a bad situation but now with the criminal charges being filed against a Tesla autopilot user now this is just anybody who uses autopilot and doesn't pay attention like could be potentially facing a lot of legal liability. Well, to me, the the, the question, and, and I'd be curious to hear what the audience thinks. Um, so, you know, reach out to us. But to me, one of the fundamental questions is whether, um, in whether the system or the person should be held liable, right? And you would see a possibility with a passenger-driven vehicle. Um, the blame being laid on a human being because there's always those um, warnings, you know, and that the human has to be in control at all times. And so that that seems like an easier legal argument, um, except for I could see one argument being if the system lulls the operator into a false sense of security. When and it's not as capable as it could be, or that as it is, 
is the system responsible or the manufacturer of that system responsible? I mean, I think the, the key issue here too is, is, you know, what kind of position did the, did Uber in this case put that driver in, right? And again, she was by herself. Uh, it was at night. It was long, long hours. Uh, apparently, and this is interesting too, because Vasquez was blamed by the media when, when, and and the public really when uh, the Tem- uh, Tempe police released this video of her looking at her phone immediately before the crash. She now says, even though she had another phone where she was listening to the voice, you know, people uh, a TV show, um, a, a, but people interpreted it as she was watching it, and she says instead she was looking at Slack messages that were part of her job as well. And so there's just a lot of things there that suggest that they put her in this position to fail, and then stuck her with the with the consequences. And I think there's a similar argument to be made. I'm not saying there's a legal case in the like the legal facts are the same because I'm not a lawyer, but like I think there's a, a moral case certainly to be made that Tesla's putting people in a similar situation. Um, by sort of in different ways, right? By sort of saying like, oh, you know, overstating the automation, telling people that, you know, these misleading statistics uh, about about how autopilot is safer than humans, uh, really trying to encourage people to rely on it and then sticking them with the consequences. So there are a lot of implications to this. Yeah, I, <laughs> it is uh, angering uh, to, <laughs> to, to have discussed this very crash was almost four years ago. And then the lack of, of proper driver monitoring being so obvious, a, I mean, a gate through which no company should have driven while testing at that phase. And then to see people defend the, you know, in Tesla the lack of driver monitoring in a system which encourages automation complacency, is it, it's, a, it's a, an intellectual and moral failure. Uh, and um, has led me to use autopilot much, much less as it has gotten better, much, much less um, out of out of caution. The uh, you know the driver monitoring is interesting because it is going to become ubiquitous in consumer passenger vehicles for systems that systems that aren't necessarily very capable at all in the coming years. And I I, I believe that. Many manufacturers are going to have different boundaries, like behavioral boundaries around what they will allow a driver to do while the system's engaged. And this is going to be the kind of next battlefield of safety. Uh, in the same way that um, uh, people literally complain about seatbelts, that it was too onerous, people, there are going to be people who, who invent privacy concerns around DMS as an excuse to not want to use a genuinely safety enhancing feature it's uh it's it is it is a tragedy what do you see as explain what you mean by what you see as the next battlefield in safety is it just dms or is it or is it beyond that well look because you know not all not all dms is the same in the same way that not all uh motorcycle helmets are the same in the same way that not name any technology you want that's supposed to improve safety there are many ways to skin cap. And so if you have a system in a vehicle, and I'm not talking about autonomous vehicle testing, I'm talking about systems that go to passenger vehicles. Um, if you have a system whose boundaries are too tight, um, where if you even, you know, your head turns away for a, you know, a second <laughs> and the OEM, the manufacturer of the vehicle, decides that out of a surfeit of caution, they would like to make it a very tight boundary of where your head can move, and where your eyes can move, and how frequently they can move off axis of where the car is going, um, people are not going to like that. <laughs> uh, and if you have a system that's too um, generous, in other words, I can look away for a minute, I can look down, I can reach down to the passenger footwell and get something um, while going 80, that's also going to be, uh, people. My, some people might love it, and that's effectively what Tesla's doing now. And yet that opens up an enormous window of risk. And so somewhere in between is the solution. And you know, there are companies, uh, I'm not going to endorse any companies here today. There are companies trying to build DMS systems that are more intelligent, that, um, and they'll get better. Everyone's systems will get better over time. But if the early systems that, that reach scale are not really smartly designed in what they allow and disallow, then DMS may not get gain the traction that it deserves if done right out of the gate. So what you're saying is, and that's kind of an interesting idea that I hadn't thought about. So 
what you see as a possibility is that DMS might not gain traction because because automakers will all interpret um, actions of owners of vehicles while behind the wheel differently that owners might resist having DMS in those vehicles. I'll give you a a concrete example. If you are, if one is driving, uh, there are people who could look straight ahead, hands at three and nine and motionless while they drive staring forward. Um, is that per and they may not be safe. They could be completely disengaged. Think of cognition, like human attention, cognition, uh, like, uh, a glass of water. And so, you know, just because you're staring straight ahead, you could be totally zoned out thinking about what a bad day you had and not engage with the task. You could hit something, but you could also have a per, but that person will probably sail through any DMS system because they are doing what is the, they're matching up with the simplest profile of what a driver should do, which is hands of three and nine looking ahead. There might be someone who uh, leans their head over. They look around a lot. Maybe they appear physically distracted, but they can be very, very engaged with the task. That person would be harder to measure, identify and allow to, uh, you know, operate the vehicle um, because they are, uh, an outlier, or at least they don't fit the traditional model of what a safe driver should be doing while they're behind the wheel monitoring a semi-automated system. And so this is one of those examples of where AI needs to be really good during a semi in a semi-automated environment to do its job. Really, really good. And I have not seen systems and- that are really, really good yet. I mean, I've seen some okay systems. There's some are better than others. Well, and I think this is where the, the training and management piece, and by the way, we've talked a little bit about training. We didn't really talk about management, but we're sort of talking about, you know, having two people in the car, having partners, sort of swapping roles, swapping partners out, just kind of keeping things from getting complacent. Because I think that's one of the things you really see in this is that complacency does develop over time. Um, but I think there's something really fascinating here that I learned about, about Vasquez in this reporting that I didn't realize that I think is super, super important. and that is. Uh, this woman had a background doing a number of different kinds of jobs that are sort of like these hidden, dirty jobs in the tech sector. Um, so like moderating grizzly posts on Facebook, you know, tweeting uh, from ABC uh, Twitter, policing social media for Wingstop and Walmart, um, just these sorts of things that are, you know, these, these sort of hidden class of workers behind the scenes. And I think for an Uber, you know, that I think there, there was sort of a sense that, you know, what they were doing behind the wheels of these vehicles is kind of similar to moderating content on Facebook or something like that. And, well, and by the, the way, way they we, we did since, it. the way they did ex- exactly. And, and by the way, we've since learned that, you know um, you know, the, the sort of human toll on people who moderate content on platforms like Facebook and stuff, like these are very difficult jobs. It's very hard on people, very different than what we're talking about here. But I think, I think what's interesting is, is that, is that Uber sort of had this, continuity with what the how the rest of the tech sector sort of um you know approaches some of these things where they need to have humans plugged into whatever their technical or technological sort of platforms or systems are um and i think that like you know one of the the things that is really important for the av industry is to differentiate themselves to say that because this technology involves you know many thousand pound vehicles moving sometimes at high speeds on public roads that like that you can't just treat this like, you know, a content moderator or something like that. This is, this is a really life and death important thing. And, and I think, you know, it would be interesting to me, we haven't really talked a ton about this, but like autonomous vehicle technology is very hard to regulate, but in some ways, you know, the easy way to regulate safety for testing of these prototypes on public roads is potentially to just regulate those human pieces, right? To say, if you're going to be testing a prototype on public roads, um, that you know you need to make sure there are two people in the car all the time, that you're following certain protocols, that you're following certain training things. Maybe 3018 is the is the is the proto, you know is the sort of uh, uh, roadmap for that. But I think um, you know as the sort of discussion about about regulation um, comes more and more to the to the fore. Um, I think that this piece of it and this story 
is a really important thing to look at because I think ultimately, and, and Alex, tell me if you disagree with me here, if you had to say there's one factor that determines the safety of, of sort of public road testing operations in the AV business, I could say maybe like at a high level, you could say like culture, right? Um, and I think that would be a good answer. But I think more specifically, it's those humans who are behind the wheel are the number one factor. Now, do you, do you agree with that or not? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's you don't send up a, a plane full of people if, that, if the pilot is only played, has only done a bare minimum level of training, and then they're, they're off. You just don't do that. It, it, it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason that different airlines, different countries, you know, have different safety records overall because you, it's about policy and cu- policy culture. But policy and culture all exist in support of the human. Uh, but I was, you did say something that I do disagree with slightly, which is um, the two person requirement. Eventually, a company's got to go two to one and then one to none. Um, and uh, but how you do that is is not a human thing it's a policy thing and so you have to uh, operate um you have to run your operations with the best not not just the best people but give the best people the the tools to do the best job they can do and as you know safety is always moving target and done right it's always improving and so you're evolving your policies around best practices over time as you learn and by putting giving people the tools the training to execute those best best practices you move the ball forward always you don't want to move the ball backwards you don't you want if you if you do you do it in sim you don't do it on the street that's a really good point <laughs> you know you kind of allude to then i understand now listening and I, and I think that the audience might as well about how how hard of a nut it is to crack um, in terms of uh, having the correct regulations. Because you can't necessarily dictate the how you reach to something but the end result. So when you're looking at removing one person and then two, you know, the first question that comes to my mind that I think every AV company is probably thinking about when they're making that decision is, um, how do we know that it's safe enough? And being able to answer that question. And then secondarily, once you remove the person from behind the wheel, doesn't necessarily you're removing human support. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like once you eventually go to a fully driverless commercial operation? Um, I think that that is those two pieces are constantly moving, like you said, um, Alex. And so then to me, it's like, how do you how do you establish legislation federally or within a state that ensures that those two pieces are done correctly or executed correctly? And I don't have the answer for that. Um, One thing that does come to mind, though. And I think that it's forgotten is that the support for an AV commercial but testing, of course, we know that a lot of people are involved. But I think that a lot of folks don't realize is how many people are involved once a um, operation is commercially deployed. Just because you don't physically see them in the vehicle, there are a ton of people involved. And that's why the culture and how those people are managed and the tools they have are just as important if not more so, even though they're not behind the wheel anymore. Yeah. I mean, this, the, uh, you know, I, I hate to, I mean, I, I'm reluctant I mean, to, do to you bring disagree? this into it. No, I completely, I completely agree. And there's a great real world example of the power and criticality of a professional, of professional operations, like a deep bench a deep operations bench and that i mean and you can see it i'm, I'm sad, sad to say in what's going on in ukraine um because you have the, the myth of you know like the, the russian army uh, going back decades of the warsaw pact this incredible like machine of uh but what we're learning is that if vehicles have the wrong tires 
and they are not prepared for weather conditions and they are not properly maintained and the people are not um, trained that the an entire a system breaks down. I mean, the world is made up of systems. The world is a system. And around and, and you can look at these systems and, and the output is good of anything, an airline, a train, a restaurant, whatever it is. Um, unless you go into the kitchen of the restaurant, you haven't seen the operations. And done perfectly, it's absolutely seamless and invisible. And done badly, the whole it's just it looks like, you know, Chernobyl. So the the least sexy part of what makes the world one run, what makes systems perform, is the most important part. And this it may be something that we should as a society um, invert in schools and education, in the way we talk about how anything is done. And we see this over and over in every vertical uh, of, of our society. Yeah, and I want to um, kind of zoom back out for a sec to to something that Kirsten had sort of talked about. Earlier, zoom out was, further than I just did. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, kind of. Okay, maybe not zoom out, like, but but you know, Kirsten, you know, you mentioned you were talking earlier about sort of the initial reaction in 2018 after this this crash, and you know, there's a lot of confusion, and um, you know, people blaming Rafael Vasquez, people blaming Elaine Hertzberg, by the way. Um, you know, there's just a lot of confusion about who was responsible and, and, and what this all meant. And, and frankly, a lot of people concluded, uh, oh, this just shows that, you know, AVs are no good or the companies developing them are no good and, and all of that. And I think, um, you know, as Alex said, it's been very nearly four years now since that crash. And, and we've been very lucky, I think, in a lot of ways that, that there hasn't been more, there haven't been more crashes. Um, and, and, I don't. I would not accuse anybody in the sort of legitimate AV space of being complacent about these risks at all. But I do wonder, you know, I could, like I think uh, uh, Rafael Vasquez, if we can all sort of agree that, like, you know, she was pretty much set up to fail by the lack of training, the lack of management, the lack of support, the long hours, all these, all these sorts of things. If you look then at the the folks who are testing you know, quote unquote testing, uh, which I think is a generous way to put it, this is full self-driving, you know, the, the, they also, they lack any kind of real screening, right? The telematics screening, as we kind of discussed before, uh, assesses your risk sort of as a driver and that this is not driving, right? There's no management. You can kind of do whatever you want right now. And, and the, the, the article also refers to this when the system is really, really janky, mm-hmm. It, you know, you don't trust it. And so you're constant. So it's easy to, you know, you're, you're afraid for your life. And so you're really on top of it. But as it gets better, that's when that risk creeps in. And so I wonder, um, sort of, and just kind of put this as an open question, is, you know, considering that really, I mean, another crash like this could happen at any moment. Um, you know, what, what can sort of or, or should be done to sort of make sure that that you know, when that happens, that um, people are, are do actually learn some of the the, the meaningful lessons about about these sorts of situations. Uh, do you either of you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I can see one one small piece that actually sort of lean goes directs me to this other story that happened this week of one result um, or one action that can be taken to ensure safety, which is on the recall front. So what do you do reactively? And what I'm talking about is um, Pony AI agreed to issue a recall um, for some versions of its um, uh, autonomous vehicle driving system as a result of of an investigation in a crash that occurred back in October. So that's a retroactive protection, but it is an important, I'd say, component of a long list of steps that need to be taken yeah shall we that's a, that's a good point is it time to move on from this topic well we can you talk about po- we can talk about pony but i do want to hear um alex if if you have any final closing thoughts about the about ed's question is there anything we could do proactively to to kind of position things a little bit better for when another crash like this happens which is probably a matter of when and not if well i think that I think that the odds of another crash occurring while are much higher uh, for one company than any other. 
<laughs> and <laughs> it starts with a T, but it's speculation. So what's, what's the proactive? So what's a proactive step? Like not allow it, or is there something else? No, I mean, I, I think the hard, the hard reason that that question is hard to answer in a way because in a perfect world, like these companies would be taking every proactive safety step and not throwing out software that just like people who have the money um, can essentially access if they pass a simple telematics test, right? So, you know, short of that, when we're talking about Tesla, I'm not sure what the answer is proactively. I guess I'm curious. I mean, about, let's, like, I mean, look, you know, if you're going to have people, this is not specific to Tesla, but it is true. If you have people operating semi-automated vehicles, hands off or like this like weird BS gray zone where you're like your hands on wheel, but like it's, just, you're just checking a torque sensor test system. And you've got a DMS, a camera based DMS. If you want to use that system at night, it need, it better have um, infrared illumination or your DMS is just unserious. And so people can play games, companies can play games day and night and try to like cut corners. But we know, like we know what mitigates risk and improves safety. Everybody knows. And some companies are getting ahead of it. And there are more than one company that uh, met or exceeded J3018 for years. I'm proud to work for one of them, but they're not the only one. And their companies just don't care. And I, I hope that if and when there is a crash, and, and I've written a column saying this, if it's a Tesla, I hope that that does not, that the industry does not throw out the time as vehicles with like the, the bathwater of the of Tesla autopilot and these bad practices, or let's just say suboptimal practices. So is a proactive answer, is the answer to Ed's question then the government or there should be some sort of regulations that, that proactively go after companies that are are not following that protocol? I, look, I like to stay out of policy for obvious reasons. <laughs> but I have said for five years that DMS, infrared illumination, uh, tightly boundaried is necessary for a system that's semi-automated. And uh, not too tightly, but done right. Like all regulation. You want it to be good, done right. Uh, and anyone who doesn't buy into that Better show me something I've never seen or heard of before. And I have not seen or heard of any alternative that's better than a really good DMS system, whether it's for autonomous vehicle testing or for a consumer privately owned vehicle with semi-automated uh, uh, tech for the, on the street today. And then just come, come to the table and explain why there's something better. I haven't seen it. Maybe there is. Maybe there's some fascinating secret millimeter wave, you know, radar system for cabin interiors, which is combined with some cognition measurement, like human iris, who, who knows? Like the, the joy of being human is that there's always someone out there who's got a better idea. And sometimes they build a product out of it, maybe. But for now, it's DMS with camera and infrared illumination um, and some variations of that uh, to mitigate risk. So, and Kirsten, I mean, the story you mentioned about about Pony AI. I mean, this is this is the first time that it's a that there's been a recall of an automated driving system. So, it sounds like this was a pretty well. I, I don't want to characterize. I don't know that we know enough to to really say anything too sweeping about it. It only affected a few vehicles. Uh, it was technically voluntary, although I think they were uh, NHTSA asked them to do the recall. But I think. You know, it's sort of a, a sign of where we're at with this whole question of regulation that NHTSA has sort of broken the seal on ordering a recall for an automated driving system. On that level alone, this is pretty significant, right? Even if the details of this are not anywhere near as shocking as the Rafael Vasquez and, and Elaine Hertzberg fatality crash that, that we've been discussing. Yeah, I mean, that's it's retroactive, right? This is a recall. I mean, that's how recalls work. Usually a problem arises and then, and then you have a re recall, but um, it being the first is, is quite interesting. Of course it, it, in more, I'll, I'll be, I, I'm curious to see if this then becomes more frequent or if this is just this anomaly one-off. Well, no, go ahead. <laughs> Well, does this mark does this mark the beginning of a new approach by NHTSA 
um, in terms of it, it certainly to me suggests that they're watching autonomous vehicle companies more closely than they were before. Um, is this the beginning of um, sort of their policy moving forward? Because, or is it just that this crash was was so troublesome and so specific to the system and, and so cut and dry, I guess, that that it resulted in this recall? We don't really know the answer to that question. We won't until if and when we see more action taken against other companies. But I mean, I think this is clearly... I think this is step two, right? Step one was the reporting requirement, right? The the special rule that was passed this last summer that required both ADAS and ADS um, uh, operators, developers to report crashes involving these things. I I don't we don't know the details of you know were did NHTSA find out about these crashes? You know, did they find out through the media and then investigate for themselves? Did they get the data through compliance with that reporting program? I've heard stories that compliance has been a little bit of a tricky thing. And I don't know when exactly, you know, the requirements, you know, go into place with the, you know, uh, with the force of law. Um, but I, I kind of assume that this was reported through, you know, this, this reporting requirement and that this is the first time that they've acted on data that they've received through that. So I see this as kind of step two, but, um, but like I said, I think it's just sort of a ramp up of, of NHTSA taking a more active role in this technology. What's, yeah, what's the next and, topic, Dot? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just about out of time, I think. I think. I think that we're good. I mean, this is like two pretty heavy subjects, but they both relate to each other in, in an interesting way, which is, you know, for one, we can go back and this article nicely gives us all the history plus new information to really identify when and where and why um, this, that fatal crash occurred. And secondarily, now moving on to the operational side, looking at what's happening with Pony is to me, like now the arc of history with a different administration, a different, seemingly a different approach to regulations and, and what could be the reactive approach to, you know, any crash. Yep. And, and you know what, sometimes just, you know, having consequences like this, you know, it sort of tells people, I think under the, you know, the last sort of four years or so, um, there hasn't been a lot of action, a lot of things on like enforcement action on, on issues related to this technology. And I think simply the fact that, you know, they've ordered the first recall, like I said, they've broken the seal that does in and of itself send a message that, you know, we're not operating in the same environment that we were before. It'll be interesting to see how how companies sort of react and and adjust and adapt to this sort of new new reality. The one thing I and maybe someone on the developer side can reach out and answer this question for me. But the one problematic thing I might be with this re, with the recall is if a company had already moved on to a different version of the software, and then how does the federal government like identify if there is a problem with that one. So let's say in the case of Pony AI, they're issuing a recall from this October crash, but what if they had identified the problem, um, changed, you know, changed, updated the software, corrected it X, Y, Z, but that hasn't necessarily been validated or verified. There's, there just hasn't been a crash yet. Um, how does it's a, uh, approach that? Do they just say, all's good, you fixed it? Or do they ask to review software? I mean, how does that play out? I guess it's it's not a statement as much as a question. I'm just curious. I just don't know. Um, because what's, on the, wait, wait, what's side, the question? What's the question? So how, how does that, I guess, how does it differ from an automaker? Because uh, usually a recall that happens with an automaker is just an existing thing that is needs to be corrected. But how does that work when it's a an autonomous vehicle company that might have already updated the software? Is it just, you know, I mean, it's kind of a silly question, but it is a question. It just is different than how automakers operate, than autonomous vehicle companies. Am I asking a question that makes sense? No, I think you're. I think you're pointing out to to sort of the the challenge here, which is that that we're, you know, NHTSA is, they are acting, they are, you know, changing the tone and, and moving forward. But what they're still doing fundamentally is applying the existing, you know, 
system with all of the assumptions that are built into it about, you know, what these vehicles are and who's operating them and everything like that, right? And applying them to a very, very different class of, of, of vehicles and, and systems and technologies and, and actors and all of that. So I think fundamentally, this is still, even though it's ramping up, I think it's, it's a stopgap measure. But, but I guess the answer to your question sort of is that like Tesla has tried to fight against the idea that like they, they want to be able to do OTA updates without doing a recall. And NHTSA has pretty clearly told them, at least for, you know, that, that that doesn't work. Like you can fix the problem via OTA update, but you still have to issue a recall because that's the law. And so, you know, I would assume that's sort of the basic philosophy. Um, but at a certain point, if you are doing OTA and, 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 you know, these are not like you're not talking about thousands and thousands of vehicles belonging to consumers, that like the mechanics of a recall are very different when you're talking about a small test fleet versus versus a, a you know again a vast like consumer fleet right. um but i think ultimately like you say these these huge differences suggest that at some point you know we're going to have to sort of split this up create separate regulatory categories and create regulations that are appropriate to each to each one of those um i think the fact that tesla kind of slips through the gaps uh in in the system that exists right now uh is is more proof of that as well alex last word Imagine uh, cracking down on the entire escalator sector because one company <laughs> exaggerated their safety and um, and had a problem. Like a broader education problem around just autonomous tech is that although the end products may look or they may do similar things, that what's behind them is it can be is very 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 different. That's We'll leave it at that. All right. Well, um, it, that makes sense. Uh, we've seen that play out or that question play out in other industries when it comes to technology, um, meaning Wait, you actually, know, they might all. You mean, you mean we didn't ban M&Ms because uh, Pop Rocks existed or whatever they're called? Sure. Sorry, bad joke. All right. <laughs> that's, not that, that's, not, that's not what popped into my mind. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that like that's the difficulty is how do you judge how do you validate and verify the technology when every company says that their product does essentially the same function? Um, that that's very difficult to to both regulate and validate, right? Um, and sometimes it comes down to the consumer actually validating it. <laughs> that's not ideal, um, but that often is what happens. So. Um, well, on that note, I think Goodbye. that we should wrap it up and thank our audience <laughs> for listening to another episode of The Atomic Guest.